0: Well, this morning we are going to continue in our series called Devoted, Finding Joy in the Spiritual Disciplines. And what I hope, as I said last week, has been working your way into your thinking throughout the series thus far is the emphasis that I've been placing on the goal that we are headed towards. I really want us to understand this truth, and I'm going to keep coming back to it throughout the series. We, we Basically, we're talking about this idea in small groups this week. Here's the, the main thing you need to know. You have to understand before you start to apply anything in your life. You need to get the goal of practicing spiritual disciplines is the joy of flourishing in godliness. And those words, I I was explaining that this this Wednesday, these are all intentional words. But what we're pursuing here is is joy, not a burden to be placed upon you, not just something to to do because you were told to do it. No, this is something that should bring joy into your life, joy into your heart, joy into the rhythm of your week. And it will cause you to flourish, to grow, and to to become what God has intended for you to be. That's the point of, of flourishing, and there's joy to be found in that as you and I, we become godly, more like him, like this one that we just sang of his worth and his greatness. We, as we learn to reflect him, we will find this flourishing and this joy that comes with it. And so what I'm, what I'm aiming for is not just that you'd be able to recite that truth, though in small groups I said, hey, who, who remembers what this was? Can you tell me the, the words? We, we worked on it. We'll, we'll get it all down there. But my goal is not just reciting a phrase, it's actually having you experience This in your life, the true joy of flourishing in godliness, which is what God intends for you and I as His people. And so my hope is that as we talk about and we begin to implement these spiritual disciplines in our lives, that you'll begin to see these things in your own life, and others will begin to notice that joy marks your life. That we're the type of people who are flourishing by coming alive in the gifts that God has given us, the things he's called us to do. And people would start to be able to tell the difference. Not because you and I say we're different on a Facebook post or a Twitter post or because we wear a a Christian t-shirt or something like that. No, but because you and I in our character, our daily lives, we're reflecting Jesus Christ. Christ. That's what we're pursuing here. That's the goal of all of this. And so the title of of the message this morning, our fourth week talking about spiritual disciplines, the the fourth discipline I want us to consider is we've talked about scripture, we've talked about prayer, we've talked about the discipline of remembering, not forgetting who God is, but but being intentional to remind ourselves of what he said, who he is, what he's done. This morning I want us to talk about true worship. True worship. True worship. Now, worship is an important topic in the life of the church and in our lives personally as Christians. It's a topic that you and I, we've looked at in various ways through different sermons and in almost every single sermon series that I have preached here because it really is connected to everything in our lives. Worship is a is this holistic thing that you and I were made to do that's meant to encompass all of who and what we are. I love Darlene Jeck's quote in her book, Extravagant Worship. She writes, Worship is more than singing beautiful songs in church on a Sunday. It's more than instruments and music. As a true worshiper, your heart will long to worship him at all times, in all ways, and with all your life. And of course, that's nothing new. You've heard me say that in in various ways to you here as I have uh, been stressing that over the last several years to you. What struck me about reading that quote from Darlene Jack years ago when I read her book was was, this is the Darlene Jack who wrote so many of the songs that marked the 90s and the early 2000s for most churches, right? She she wrote Shout to the Lord, which is sung in in almost every language on the planet. And here she is, this, this amazing worship leader saying, listen, worship is way more than just the song way more than just the music. It's about your life, all of your life being lived as worship unto God. So, so what we just did, this moment we just had in these beautiful songs we sang as we lifted our voices, that was certainly worship. That's part of what it means to worship God, but that's not it. That's not the end. Worship time is not done now that I've come up and opened up the Bible. We're still in this moment able to worship God. And true worship can occur in all parts of our lives. If we've talked about so many times before, from drinking a cup of tea to enjoying the sunset that you can see to hearing good music or having a good conversation, playing or watching sports, all of that can be done in a way that's worship unto God. Or all of it can be done in a way that is worship to something or someone else. As I said clearly last week to you, everything that exists was created to worship, to glorify God. And you and I, as, as creations of God, human beings that we are, we are wired for worship and we do worship constantly. The question is not, are we worshiping right now? The question is, who or what are we worshiping in this moment? If our hearts are aware of the God who's behind the gifts, whatever they may be that we're engaging in, from food to drink to friends to family to sports to our work, whatever it may be, if we're grateful for the gift that God has given us as we're engaging in that thing and we're viewing those things as, you remember from Colossians, we talked about how those are shadows upon the ground that are designed to cause you and I to look up to Christ himself, right? There there are these things that if we just spend our lives looking at the gifts, looking at the shadows, we miss the beauty of the one who's offering us the gifts and how how foolish that would be to live that way. If you and I will look beyond the shadow, beyond the gift, beyond creation to God himself, then we will find our lives, are truly lives of worship being poured out in everything, in every moment that we have. You and I, we glorify God by gratefully enjoying the things he has given us to experience in this life. That's how we can worship in the day today that we have before us, as different as that is for so many of us in this room. So what I want us to see today... What I want us to stress about true worship, because we've talked about this from different angles and different ways in in so many different sermons over the, the last few years, is I want us to consider this element as we think about worship and the role of worship in our daily lives as a spiritual discipline. Understand this this morning. There is no part of our lives that we are free to disconnect from worship. There are no parts of your life, of my life, that we're free to say, that's not worship time. (laughs) That's not a worship thing. You and I can't disconnect what we do from worship. If you have your Bible this morning, turn over to Psalm 139 with me. Psalm 139. We're going to walk through this psalm together in sections, and then we're going to consider our application from just this one psalm this morning. Psalm 139. We're going to start in the first five verses, starting in verse 1. David is writing this psalm, and he says in Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Now, Psalm 139 is a very well-known psalm. You've probably read through this psalm before. The opening line here and the concluding lines that we'll get to in, in just a bit, the end of the sermon, they've been turned into songs that you and I have likely sung. They've been sung all over the world, many different generations, in many different styles of music. This is a, a psalm that brings a lot of comfort to God's people, and there's some truths in here that are really profound, that really should enliven our hearts, as we will see. So what David begins with in these first five verses here of this are truths that are very, very important for you to keep in mind to frame how you and I need to live lives of true worship and how crucial that is to our relationship with the Lord. So notice, notice with me the starting tense in verse 1. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Right. So, so get this, right? Right now, God knows everything about you and I. He's God, right? He knows all that. He's not waiting for your permission. He's not hoping to get to know you by you coming into prayer and sharing some information. He's like, oh, oh, that's what was going on in your life this week. Great, thanks for letting me know. He's not looking to learn anything about you. He has already, past tense, searched us and known us. And look how David expresses the details of that. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Let's be really clear here. I was reading this text, and, and, and a song popped into my mind. I know many of you have songs pop into your mind. This one wasn't a worship song, though. A song popped into my mind from Christmas. Anyone, anyone see what song I may be thinking of? See me when I sit down, when I rise up. Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, when did that become a part of the Santa Claus story, Right? He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, right? That's not what David's talking about here. (laughs) He's not singing to St. Nicholas, he's talking about God, the true God. He knows, St. Nicholas doesn't know when you go to sleep and when you get up, spoiler alert. But God does. He sees even the mundane things of when you sit down, when you rise up, God, he knows all of that, because he is in fact God, so David goes on to say, look, you, you've you already searched me and known me, God. You, you know my thoughts, he says in these five verses. You know the words that I will say before I say them. He says, you know all of my ways, all my habits, my desires, my plans, my goals, the things I do day in day. You know all of that. You are completely aware of me. You surround me, and you're engaged with me. Your hand is upon me. You are not far away just watching the movie unfold. You are there with me. Your hand is upon me. This expansive, complete, constant, at all times, knowing all things, type of knowledge that God has is in David's mind. And so David writes, look at verse 6, as he thinks about how God knows him, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You hear what David is saying to God here? He's saying, God, this reality that you have this type of knowledge of me, this awareness of me, that I, this little insignificant speck of dust compared to you, these amazing truths about how you know me are so wonderful. They are so high. They are so amazing. I can't grasp them. I just stand in awe of how you know me. This is an exclamation of worship on the part of David in verse 6. He's just in awe of who God is and what God does and how he relates to us. And so the knowledge of that leads him to understanding there are some implications if God has this type of all-encompassing knowledge. Look at the next section and the questions that it raises and answers. Psalm 139, look at verses 7 to 12. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. David looks at this all-encompassing knowledge that God has, the depth of God's knowing of us in verses 1 through 5. He praises him in verse 6, and then he moves on to the pervasiveness of this type of omniscience on the part of God. And David, he's realizing, look, Lord, it's not just when I go to the temple that you know my sitting down and my rising up. It's not just when I take time to have my morning or my evening prayers that you're aware of me. It's not just the moments where I feel like singing to you and worshiping you and then you're aware of me. No, he says God is aware of him. No matter where he is and no matter what he is doing, God knows and sees it all. God's complete knowledge of us, our actions, our motives, our words, our thoughts, it's just as true during the week as it is on Sunday morning in the gathering. There's no place, there's no part of your life that's hidden from the view of God. Like, like really grasp that. Feel that. There is nothing that you can hide from God. There are no secrets in your life from him. There's no part of your life that's just yours. There's no place that you could go to try and keep something from God's knowledge. He sees it all. He knows it completely. David says, where, where could I go? Where could I go to get away from you? The heavens? No, you're there. The depths of Sheol? You're there. The remotest part of the earth? You're, you're there. The depths of the sea? There you are. No time makes a difference. The blackest, darkest night with no one around to see, no one around to hear, no one around to have any understanding of what it is you're doing, there's God, seeing and knowing it all. There's nowhere for us to go, nowhere for us to be, nowhere for us to hide anything from God. Anyone feel the weight of that to be a little uncomfortable? Look how he continues, Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. David probably feels the same little tinge of uncomfortableness that you and I feel when we think about God knowing everything. Nothing's hidden from him. He knows what your spouse doesn't know, what your best friend doesn't know, what you you don't even want to admit to yourself. God knows that perfectly and fully. And, and David probably feels that same tinge of uh, this is too much, this is, this is too personal, God, and yet he continues to think about this creative knowledge of God and God's hand upon him and he realizes, look, it's not, it's not even just real-time knowledge that God has of me he's not learning my story by watching what's unfolding he's not he's not analyzing my thoughts and my actions to try and figure out what's going on the inside of my heart or what was in my mind at that moment no he says god you you yourself created me you you designed me in the womb you you've made me fearfully and carefully how wonderful are your works the innermost details of who i am are there by your hand by your plan you saw me before i was you know my future perfectly because you have planned my days, and you control my life entirely. Listen, God is writing the story, not reading it. He knows, He knows us all everything about us. Nothing is hidden, nothing is a surprise to God. And these beautiful truths lead David to say in verses 17 and 18, "How precious to me are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them?" If I could count them, they are more than the sand if I awake and I am, I awake and I am still with you. Look, this, this response here is true worship. To hear these things about God, how much greater than us that he is, and then to declare, to respond to that by going, how precious and how magnificent you are, Lord. As uncomfortable as it may make me feel, how great it is that you are who you are. True worship comes from knowing God, knowing who he is, what he has done, and what he has said. And he has said, this is who he is. He's revealed to us, this is who he is. This is what he knows. This is what he's like. And our response should not be, whoa, 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 a little close there. (laughs) Give me some space, God. Our response, like David, should be depression. How, How precious then are these thoughts, God? That's who you are, and I want to adore you. I want to love you. And then listen to verses 19 to, to 22, because, because there's a bit of a shift, right, in the psalm. If you're looking at the text there, look at, look at verses 19 to 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. <laughs> So, so we're going through this Psalm and at first blush this can seem a little awkward. Like here here David is, he's praising all these incredible realities of who God is, of how God knows us, of how he's with us, of how he's guiding our lives, how he's everywhere we could ever go. And then David takes this turn all of a sudden, right, to talk about the wicked, about those who are malicious in their heart, about those who take the Lord's name in vain, about those who hate God. And and David's response to all of it, this passionate, your thoughts are so precious, you are so incredible God, suddenly turns into, and I hate them, Lord. Would you judge them and pour out your wrath on them? Right. So, so what's happening here? Why the turn? Is this is this something where you know maybe maybe David was having a really good day when he, he wrote the first part, and then something bad happened. He came back. He's like, well, yeah, blah blah blah, you know, and wrote down the next couple of verses. Is that, is that what happened here? No. I I think this is this response is deeply connected to what was happening in David in the verses before. I mean, David's life, if you know the particulars of his life, you know David had real enemies. and like he, he knew real people who were wicked and bloodthirsty and haters of the true God. But the heart of why David reacts so strongly is not just David had a bad day when he was pinning Psalm 139. It's not disconnected from the pondering and all he's been saying about who God is and his nature. No, it's, it's because of who God is that David reacts so strongly. See, David is so in awe of God, he's so captivated by God's greatness, he's so moved to worship and honor and and to glorify the true God that he understands and he feels so deeply that anything or anyone that would attack his God, that would seek to diminish the name and the glory of his God in any way, that he's so passionate about responding to that, it's the passion for his love of God that leads to his passion against God's enemies, See, so at the time of the Reformation, this, this principle was laid out by the, the Reformers in explaining why they wrote the things they wrote, why they preached the way they, they preached, why they said some of the very strong things that they had to say during that day. And the Reformers used the illustration of a dog and its master to try and help us understand why one would react like this so strongly. The Reformers said, what, what, what good dog would not bark and become defensive when his master is attacked? the reformer said, we we too, we are like dogs compared to our great master, but we also then must bark and come to his defense when his name and his character are attacked by false teachings and by evil men. And they say, well, we're nothing. It's not really about us. It's about how great he is. We can't stand by and let evil men attack our master. And I think of that, and it explains a lot, but I think perhaps more compelling and maybe more (laughs) relatable of an illustration for me is is the relationship of a husband and a wife or, or a parent and children. I mean, what good and loving spouse or parent would not respond with passion and aggression when your loved ones are attacked, right? I mean, people can and have, in my own life, said very mean and very evil, very hateful things about me, attacked my character, attacked me verbally in in. Real context of people spread lies in places that I have been, and the Lord has been kind enough to, to give me patience to deal with that and work through that most of the time <laughs> without strong response. I can take a lot if you're attacking me, but if you start to attack my wife or my children, all bets off, right? Like that's, that's the moment when my wit and my tongue, oh, they're sharp. That's the moment when, like, you can say a lot about me, you can get really aggressive with me, and I'm not going to get physical in response, but you start to attack my wife or my kids, I'll get physical. We'll go. Right? It's my passion, my love for them that leads me to that type of response. That's what's happening in, in David here, too. He, he himself, he suffers a lot of slander. A lot of evil things are said and done towards him. But David, he's such a passionate worshiper that when he gets really passionate about defending something, it's not his own name. He's after he's been staring at the beauty and the majesty of God that when evil ones come to attack the God he loves, then David's passions flow to defend him, to stand up for his name. So, what we need to to think about here, though, because what we can do is we can hear this and we can go, yes, okay, so every time I'm getting angry and worked up and passionate, me and David, woo, yeah. Listen, though, what we need to see is the heart of what's happening here and what David says next, because this is not just David flying off the handle. And look, listen, this is not David posting things to social media, calling people names, calling for consequences of people they don't like. Hear me, that, that reaction that, that we tend towards very quickly in our day and age right here, it's not godly, it's not helpful, it's not what you and I need to be doing as Christians. These verses that David wrote here, it's not, it's not the equivalent of David posting a meme online or making a snide comment on somebody else's post. Let's be honest, you and I, if you're aware, you know doing that is not changing anybody's mind about anything. It's not helpful Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they're not the way to change people's hearts. Social media is a horrible venue for trying to do that, and yet it's the first thing we often rush to. Social media has cost more Christians their witness to the world than it has enhanced it. It's so easy for us today. We've got our phones, we've got our keyboards at home, and because of that, for some reason, Christians We have this dreadful tendency to think that all the commands and all the warnings in Scripture about guarding our speech, about speaking words that build up and edify others, to the commands to be careful about how you walk before outsiders so that you are above reproach, even just the call to be a witness to a God of grace and mercy and understanding and compassion, we throw all of that away so we can post something online really quickly. Because that'll get them. Look, I love technology. I really do believe technology can be a gift. I'm online. I am not a Luddite. But the more I engage with technology, the more I see the need to be careful and intentional and to be really aware of what it's doing in our hearts and in our spiritual lives. So a good use of this is just last night, a a, a man I went to college with, hadn't talked to in several years, he reached out to me. He said, he said hey, it's been a while, man, but you know, I've been following you guys uh, online, been seeing what the Lord's doing um, in your own life and in the church, that's, that's great, and I, my response was, yeah, same, I, you know, I kept up with you and the girls and, and your kids and how things are, are going, and, and we said, let's, let's catch up, let's talk later in the week. We were able to reconnect a little bit because of technology, that's wonderful, that's great, and when I can use technology for that kind of good purpose, wonderful, but you know what else I know to be true about my own heart? And I'm going I'm to tell you it's true of your own heart, even if you're not reflecting enough to see it right now. What's true of, of my own heart is that I can be drawn into less beneficial uses of technology really, really easily too. Like I can be tempted right when I wake up to be the first thing I do is I grab my phone. Let me see what's going on. I can be in the middle of working on something else and just feel that, that pull. i got to check. Is there, is there a new something new happening? Is there an update on that thing? Right. I can be focused on something else, and all of a sudden, my heart my mind, they get distracted, and I, I really want to pick this up and find out what's going on. I have the temptation, even, as, as much as I know what the result will be, I, too, I get the temptation. I wonder what that person has been saying lately. You know, that one person who I know everything they said really will make me angry. I'm going to be so frustrated that they claim the name of Christ and then they say that stuff. And, and I've got them blocked because I don't want to see that stuff normally, but I've got that temptation every once in a while. Yeah, I, could, I, I didn't unfriend them, so I could still go see what they're saying. And I want to I wanna search and I want to go find what, you know, in my mind, what dumb thing have they said that I could go respond to and prove how stupid they are and how smart I am? Like, that's there. This, this, this insidious little pull is in my heart. It's in yours, too, if you're paying attention. Look, what I want more, though, than to be the guy who has all the answers online and has those great posts, is I want to be a true worshiper of God. And as I said before at the start of this message, a true worshiper of God doesn't get to connect any part of life from glorifying God. So I have to weigh out, does making that comment, does proving them wrong, is that worship to God? Or am I doing that as worship to something else? So to echo the language of, of David from this Psalm, I, I need to ask myself, you need to ask yourself, Lord, where can I go from your presence and the view of your gaze? If I sit at home and go online to Facebook or Twitter, you are there. My thoughts and my heart and my comments and my posts, Lord, you see them all. Now hear me. You and I need to understand the passion in the heart of David and the heart of the Reformers is almost never the same as our heart when we get on social media. They are out there defending the nature and the character of God and who he is. They were dealing with things that really mattered for eternity. They did it in writing, yes, but they were also willing to do it in person, face-to-face, knowing they might pay for that defense with their lives, and countless numbers of them did. So we should think about that before you say, no, I'm just like David, getting passionate about this idea. I'm just like the reformers calling for a better world to live in. Before you go there, think about it. Are you really willing? Are you really saying this is something I will go and die for, that it's that? Because that's what the reformers were doing. That's what David was talking about. They were dealing with things far more important than what you and I typically deal with on social media, myself included, not pointing fingers here, all of us. And they did it in venues that actually did help people change their minds, and I'm less and less convinced any social media platform you're on is for that purpose. We need to take a more humble and a more worshipful approach to our daily lives. Social media is just one aspect of it, but it's an aspect you and I, we really do need to consider because of when we live. So look now at what David says in conclusion, because there's something here in David's heart that really is what exposes the difference between us and David so much. Look at verses 23-24. David says, Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me to the way everlasting. This is the heart of the true worshiper. David is not just getting angry about others. David is not just asking God, go deal with all those others out there, Lord. That's not how he ends this. He says, he comes right back around and asks God, hey, search my heart. Show me my sin Expose my thoughts. <laughs> and remember, at the start of the psalm, David already said that God knew him perfectly, right? That, that, that God had already tested him. That God had already known his thoughts and his heart. So what he's doing here is he's just applying that truth, the doctrine of who God is and how God relates to us, to his moment that he is sitting in, and he's saying, all right, God, especially when I'm angry, especially when I'm upset, especially when I'm wanting to see you do something to someone else, to be expose, expose their sin, their foolishness, whatever that is, Lord, when I want that, okay, I need to remind myself, where's my heart? Lord, reveal to me my heart, my sin. Am I off base here somewhere? David understands that more important than exposing others is dealing with his own heart. So we ask God, search me know me, expose my sin to to me, lead me in the way everlasting. David seeks to repent so that his own worship is not destroyed. David wants to be close to God in all of his life, and to do that he knows it means we must examine our hearts, we must repent of our own sins, we must seek to honor and obey God in everything that we do. So so I've given us kind of a practical personal application, right, with, with social media. And, and most of us are on social media. Some of us are, are not. So if you're thinking, whew, good, man, he was really hitting that application point And all those people on Facebook, they got to listen up, but not me. I'm, <laughs> I'm good. No, this text speaks to us too. Look, every aspect of our lives is this. God sees everything that you do in your life. He sees if your heart is engaged in worship by what you watch and how much you watch it. You need to consider, are the shows, are the games, are the movies, whatever it may be, can you honestly look at yourself? Can you evaluate your own heart and go, okay, am I able to watch this? Am I able to spend my time watching this with gratitude towards God? If the answer is no, then you're worshiping something other than him. Can you meaningfully say, Lord, thank you for the gift of time to watch this, whatever that specific content may be? And look, that can be with a football game. That can be with the baseball game. That can be with that movie. It, it, I'm not saying that you can't ever say yes to this. I'm saying you can, but if you find that you can't, that gives you the answer that you're not worshiping God in that moment. If your answer is, I really wouldn't be proud, I'm not really grateful to worship the Lord in this moment. It's just laziness that I flipped on the TV because that's easier. Or perhaps you go, I mean, if I really saw that God was sitting here on the couch next to me watching the screen, I'd be a little ashamed of the content that's on the TV right now. If those are your answers, then understand you're not worshiping him, you're worshiping something else. We need to humble ourselves and say, like David said, search me, O God. See if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me, Lord, to the way everlasting. This is not true of just electronic media. It's, it's everything. It's the books that we read. It's the hobbies that we take on, the food that we eat, the drinks that we have, the conversations we have, the work that we do, and the way we go about doing that work. All of it can be glory to God or all of it can be something much lesser. As I said at the start, there are no parts of our lives that we are free to disconnect from worship. And the reality is you couldn't even if you tried You can't stop worshiping. It's what you are made to do, and you are constantly worshiping something. So if you're spending your days and your weeks not thinking about worshiping God in your daily tasks, then you're worshiping yourself, or you're worshiping creation, or you're worshiping something far lesser, but you are always worshiping. So you need to honestly ask yourself, who or what are you worshiping in your life outside of these doors? And in terms of applying that here to this church gathering, I have told you so many times before, let me say it again to you, just being here, sitting in the pew this morning, it doesn't make you a worshiper, just because you're here. Jesus gives a warning to us about people who would profess to worship him, but, but really aren't. In Matthew 15, verses 7 to 9, he says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Get this, in vain do they worship me. Listen, listen to Jesus. It's not enough to honor God externally if your heart is not engaged in it. Think about what you just heard in Psalm 139. God knows you. He sees your heart. He sees your thoughts. He's aware of your feelings and your desires and your longings as you sit here right now. He knows exactly what's going on inside of you. You can't fool him or hide anything from him. You and I were made to worship, but if we think that just doing the external actions that look like worship from from what we understand that to be is enough, you're, you're missing the point. If you haven't engaged your heart and your mind, then just coming into the gathering and singing and listening and praying, all of it, all the external things you do, if your heart's far from God, it's all in vain. It won't make a difference. We do not fool God with false external actions of worship. He knows our hearts. So I've implored you many times before, and I will again, do not pretend. Don't try to fool other people with your external actions. Don't try to act like your heart's in the right place if it's really not. Don't sit in here and offer false worship because your pride would be too hurt to admit that you are indeed a sinner who's not perfect. And that you too need God to do this work of searching your heart, exposing your own sins, and leading you into the way of righteousness. But I want us today to not only hear the warning, I, I want us to have the application of how complete this knowledge of God is and, and how that should produce reflective, intentional lives of worship. I want us to, to get that as we hear the gospel. Listen, you are broken and you fall short and you're not perfect in making these moments, times of worship, the way they should be or your daily lives, the lives of worship that they should be and neither am I. We all fall short, all of us. We're sinners even as we are called saints. We are simuljustice et peccator. We are simultaneously justified and yet sinners. You're not getting it all right, so don't pretend that you are. I mean, you're not fooling me. You're not fooling anyone in this room who knows the Bible. And you're certainly not fooling God. He's not unaware. He sees our brokenness. He sees our needs. And he doesn't say, hey, go get cleaned up. Go get your act together and then get back in here. And and you better figure it out because I'm watching you. That's That's not God's response. God says, hey, you're broken, you're messed up, and you're sinful, and you failed over and over and over again. But hey, come to me. Come, come here. Admit your sins, admit your failings, and receive again grace and forgiveness. Come to me. Cast your burdens upon me because I care for you. Come to me, God is saying. Receive grace and mercy and help. You cannot do it alone, and I'm not asking you to try. I'm with you, I love you, I will help you. That's what he's saying to us today. The gospel message doesn't diminish the doctrinal truth of how much God knows about you in any way. As I said before, Jesus knew exactly what he was buying on the cross. He knew all of your sins, all the sins you had last week, all the sins that you're gonna commit today, all the sins of your coming week and year. He he knows all of them, and Jesus paid for the sins. past present and future for all of his people. So we can come to him, we can find again grace and mercy and forgiveness. The goal I'm aiming for here, the goal even of this message, and I get it, I pressed in, it's a little uncomfortable, the application's a little too close to home. I know, I feel it too, but my goal in all of this is not just to produce guilt in us, it's to produce a life lived more intentionally, not for the sake of doing, not for the sake of avoiding certain things, not for the sake of rules or legalism. The goal is that you and I would have true joy that comes from flourishing in godliness. Living unreflective, unrepentant, falling into seeking joy and fulfillment from other things, it will leave you disappointed in the end. It will. I know what social media will do to your heart if left unchecked. I know what watching worthless shows and mindless time before screen will do. I know how going to work and doing, trying to do all of that without seeing God in any of it, it will lead to killing your spiritual vitality. You won't have the joy. You won't have the life God intends for you. And I know the danger of people thinking, hey, I'm showing up to church. I've got, I'm good. I'm, I'm living a certain way and doing certain things. I know. I know. It brings me to tears to think that there are people who will be in church all of their lives, who will live good external moral lives, and they will end up in hell because they've never placed their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They think, I'm doing enough. I'm earning it. You're not. He knows you're not. And he's not telling you to try. He's telling you to come and to trust in him, to lean on him. He's the one who's worthy. You, you and I, we are not. So I want you, I want myself to have joy. I want us to flourish here and now in our lives and in eternity to come. And the only way to do that is by us relying upon Jesus Christ. By admitting our sin, by admitting our shortcoming and trusting, he will forgive those things. He will save us from those things. Yes, yes, it will take work. Yes, it will be uncomfortable to live a disciplined life, to incorporate disciplines into your life, but the results, my friends, they're worth it. They're worth it. Would you join me in praying this morning as we humble ourselves before God and ask him to apply this to us, not just now, but as we leave this place. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your love for us, and we thank you for the ability to deal honestly with who we are, to not have to pretend, to not have to act as if we have it all together but to be able to humbly admit what is true. You know us. You know our sins. You know our brokenness. You know our failings. And so, Lord, in this moment, I pray that every person in this room, every heart in this room, would be moved to respond to the reality that you already know by by just opening up and honestly admitting where we are with you. That that we would say, this is where I am, and, Lord, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I'm trusting that that Jesus will, will give that to me despite how bad I am, Lord, I pray, Every heart in this room, every person who hears this message will respond in this way because you're calling to us, come come to you. Lord, I thank you for for the chance to have this time together. I'm thankful for these, these minutes, Lord, that are valuable, that do matter, and that should be times of worship for us. Lord, would you apply these things to our hearts and to our lives now and through the rest of this day and throughout the next week, Lord, that we would be people changed by knowing you are the God who knows us, who is with us. May we rely upon you and trust in you and may we reflect you in our lives, in this world here and now. It's in your beautiful name that we pray, Lord Jesus. And everyone said, amen.